0: The world around us is changing faster than ever before from automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome welcome, to Data Guru's podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome, Welcome to
1: the Data Gurus podcast. I'm excited to welcome Steve Schlesinger of the Schlesinger Group to the podcast today. Welcome, Steve.
2: Good to be here with you.
1: I should also say you're the CEO of the company as well. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know that, but just for formality. (laughs) How are you doing?
2: I'm good. I'm good. A little bit of a rainy day here in New York, but otherwise, all good.
1: Good. I am fascinated by the story of your company. And not only has it been around for many years, but just the fact that your mom founded the company. And I'd love to hear about that story, if you don't mind sharing that.
2: Sure, uh, absolutely. So my mom started in the market research business, I think it was in 1963. Um, You know, just really looking for a part-time job. A friend of hers was working for a company in New York City and said, hey, you "You talk on the phone, you interview people. My mom was a person who loved to talk to people and said, hey, I can do that. And she got a job as a part-time interviewer doing phone interviews, I think, from the bedroom of of our house, the house I grew up in. Yeah, and after a year or two, I guess she was really good at it. They decided to make her a regional supervisor really covering New Jersey and New York, that area. And then I think it was in nineteen sixty-six, they a number of companies that she was working for had said, you know, we really want you to be managing a whole bunch of people and supervising folks. And we really need you to open up your own company and set yourself up so that's your company, these people work for you and that, you know, ultimately we'll feed you business and you'll execute for us. And, you know, that's the way we're going to do it. So she got in, Was incorporated in 1966. So that's what we call our starting year of our business. You know, and then wound up building up a roster of clients that she did field data collection for. And you know, I use the expression field data collection because a lot of the work back then was really door-to-door interviewing. It was intercept interviewing. It was you know telephone interviewing. A lot of work around the retail environments and going into stores and checking price points and display activity and things like that. And the work at that time was primarily in the, you know, the New Jersey, New York metro area.
1: Okay. I mean, for that time period, that pretty bold move for your mom, right? I mean, women weren't setting the stage and, you know, starting companies and working out of the home, working outside of the house
2: yeah it was what's interesting is that you could sort of say my mom really wasn't working out of the house because <laughs> the evolution of the business was from the bedroom to the kitchen to the base, but I do think it was a time where you know there weren't a lot of women running companies, and you know granted it was a small company, but running a company and you know being responsible for you know teams of people and so on and you know so I think it was you know at a time that that was unusual. she was also part of a you know phenomenal group of women who all started in the data collection space more or less at the same time all around the you know late 50s 60s and you know there were a whole group of them that had built up businesses through the years and you know some of those businesses were you know ultimately bought out by other companies but it was a great group of people and you know they did a wonderful job building up this sort of data collection aspect of the market research world
1: Almost like a supportive network to help each other along the way. Yeah, yeah. And how early in your career were you involved with the business? I can imagine, you know, if your mom's working out of the house, inevitably there's things that get thrown your way to say, can you help me out with this or that?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think the earliest I did an official, you know, job for her was when I was 17 and I think it was doing intercept interviews at Newark Airport for United and we would actually intercept people as they came off the planes to do customer satisfaction work. And we'd hand them surveys to fill out and, and mail back. I did that a whole bunch of times for her when I was in high school, and probably when I was in college as well. Other than that, I'd say, you know, there was not a lot that I had done. But I will say that, you know, there were some funny stories, you know, growing up. You know, in those days when you had, when you did home use tests or product tests, there was always leftover product. So, you know, many times, you know, At our kitchen table, you know, we'd be drinking, you know, soda 267 or, you know, toothpaste R and things like that. So, you know, it was always part of our growing up was all these products around our house. Plus the fact that the business was in the house, you know, many times if we were placing products, the products would be there. And occasionally I'd be asked to go deliver something to someone, whether it was an interviewer or even a respondent for that matter. So, yeah, it was fun when I think about it.
1: Yeah. And did you understand market research at that point in your life? Or was it, you know, something that your mom did and you were just helping out?
2: So, you know, I'd say that I probably understood it less when I was younger, younger, but in my teenage years, my mom started doing focus groups in our house. And uh, she had worked primarily for an ad agency called, at the time was called Shia Day, which is now TBWA and part of Omnicom. Shia Day had a whole bunch of account planners that were from the UK originally and the way that they did work in the UK was really in people's houses so they had connected with my mom and wound up you know coordinating with her to run focus groups in the house I grew up in you know pretty much Monday through Thursday almost every week and eventually actually out of my sister Debbie's house in LA the same thing and you know the clients would sit in the kitchen and watch it on closed circuit tv and the respondents would be in our family room and you know we'd be doing work for you know all types of brands everything from Miller beer to Apple in its early days to Nike in its early days and the you Ashite know, had a great roster of clients
1: they won that early Apple campaign right I, think, I i remember yeah
2: they're the ones who created the famous 1984 ad for the Super Bowl that only aired that's right so you know there was a lot going on you know, in my house. And that's when I really started to understand like what was going on, like what they were doing, what they were talking about, testing ad campaigns and, and so on. And I was a teenager at the time, you know, my father and I used to get kicked out of the house <laughs> going on, I had to go eat dinner at some restaurant or some diner. That's so and funny. And sneak back in, you know, between the groups at, you know, at between six and eight o'clock and you know, the other, the changeover of groups
1: you went to college obviously and post college did you go right into the business or did you get experience in other venues prior to joining the company
2: yeah so i you know went to college and then actually took a year off and then went to medical school actually to graduate for a year and then after that first year i decided to take a year off cuz i just wasn't sure if i really wanted to go into medicine right and in that year off my mom said you know Like most moms would say, is you're not going to sit around on your butt doing nothing. You need to work and figure out what you're doing in your life. And if you want to work for me and make some money, you know I can keep you busy, and then you can figure out if you want to go back to medical school or at the time I was thinking about going back to or going to graduate school instead of medical school to work more on the research side of medicine. And I fell in love with the work I was doing for her. It it made sense to me. I enjoyed it. I was managing projects. A bunch of them were actually for government contracts. So they were, you know, for the FDA and for uh, welfare, actually. And they were these big government studies that we were doing with the Temple University and their Institute for Survey Research. And I really liked the work a lot. And I was like, I'm enjoying this. And I think I want to do this. And she said, well, you know, it's a good business. I'm going to retire pretty soon. And you know, if you're interested in it, you know, we'll try to maybe build it up a bit and, you know, see what we can do with it to make it a little bit more substantial. And, you know, and surely, you know, open up an office and get you out of this house because, (laughs) you know, at the time it was not, that wasn't going to be a healthy environment for me working in the basement of my mother's house. Yeah, that's sort of how I started in it. And, you know, probably the best decision I ever made and, or one of the best decisions I ever made. and And honestly, you know, we've had a great you know, sort of growth journey since... Mm
1: -hmm. And you took over as president, how many years after?
2: Oh God, I I couldn't remember the exact year, but, you know, I probably worked with my mom for, you know, it was probably a solid maybe six or seven years, you know, sort of took over running the business probably, you know, give or take maybe 25 years ago. Yeah, you know, I was probably working for her for, you know, probably somewhere between seven and 10 years before I really started running it myself, really partners in it. And, you know, the thing I just want to mention about my mom is that, you know, this is a woman who, you know, grew up probably lower middle class, not college educated, but she grew up in the depression and she was a big believer in hard work, you know, dollar work, dollar pay, you know, very honest, very ethical and really... You know, I think she allowed our business to have this really strong foundation, you know, good reputation, good person, incredibly personable. And I think that really allowed our business to really sort of grow once we put some fuel on the fire, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it seems like, I mean, obviously, even now, Schlesinger has such an amazing brand reputation in the industry. It seems like it started when your mom started the company and it continued forward.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think we still live by those same principles today and ethos. And I really have always appreciated what she, you know, gave to the business in terms of that foundation. And, you know, and it makes it easier. You know, I can sit there and say that, you know, we've grown to a really, you know, substantial size and have had, you know, decades of success. But, you know, so much of that is, you know, was made easy by the fact that, you know, she laid a lot of that foundation and you know, gave us sort of a, a bit of a running start.
1: And so now, you know, you take over the company, you just you're putting you're scaling it up a bit. You're putting additional layers of foundation to strengthen and scale the business. What are the some of the lessons that you learned during that phase of the business as you started saying, okay, I'm gonna kind of make this something a little bit bigger than what it was and consciously grow and expand the business.
2: Yeah. I think that what you have to always remember is You're always needing to learn as you go. You know, you're a different company when you're 5 million, 10 million, 100 million, 200 million. You have to manage and lead differently. You have to rely on people differently. You have to make decisions as to what you want to be. And if you want to be that, what it takes to get there. And ultimately, how you need to change as an individual within that organization. So for me personally, It was, you know, how to grow and how to lead and how to manage differently over those different stages of growth. It was, you know, how to learn from mistakes I made and, you know, try not to make them again, but most important, learn from them. It was, you know, surely surrounding myself with great people, making sure that, you know, I had the team that could help me achieve the goals I set out for, you know, it's recognizing that you don't know everything and even more important, you don't need to be good at everything. You know, I am not good at a whole bunch of things, and, but you know, I've found people who can compliment me incredibly well. And I would also say it's a heck of a lot more fun to do with a group of people that you really enjoy you know, getting at it with.
1: So true. I mean, you spend so much time working together. You might as well respect and enjoy that time as well with the people that you work with.
0: Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies. Whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation, we are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today.
1: So like, how would you characterize yourself as a leader? You know, what are some of the things that come to mind when you think about your leadership style?
2: So I'm I'm a really good delegator. Yeah, I don't enjoy or believe in micromanaging. I'm not a control freak. So I think that that really works well when you're scaling up and really trying to, you know, get to a different place in terms of the evolution of the business. You know, I think I'm a good listener and I think that that's helped me a lot. I think I'm really good at putting faith and trust in people around me, as well as even advisors and folks that, you know, sort of support me in other ways. I'm a big believer in that. We have a real strong belief in staying humble. You know, you don't want to pat yourself on the back too much. You want to take that success and enjoy it and, you know, and appreciate it, but you don't want to get too full of yourself that you're not recognizing that you know, you've had some things go your way and you've been in the right place at the right time or you've made the right connection and just stay, you know, to that work ethic that brought you. So I think that that's always been really important and ingrained in myself, but also in our business. And, you know, and then also always have an eye on what's changing, you know, how we can, we should be adapting and adopting to, to ensure that we're, relevant, not just today, but in the future. And that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of. I mean, you know, we've been around for 50 some years now, and there's not a lot of companies that have that of history, that heritage. And I love that about us, but it only works if we continue to change and evolve. If we rely on what we did, you know, a decade ago, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I think that's what sort of helps us, you know, separate ourselves from maybe our competition, but even more from the fact of losing our relevance.
1: So true. I think that's one of the, it's not a danger, but I think you're right. Like if you're around long enough, how do you balance new learning understanding innovation, making sure that people continuously learn and keep up with the pulse of the market, but also continue to stay focused on your core business. It's an interesting challenge, but an exciting one because it goes back to the people. And if the people have similar values that you have, it can be a ton of fun.
2: Yeah, And then you also have to watch out that you're not living in a vacuum, You know that you have feedback loops that are in a variety of different ways giving you that insight and information that maybe you wouldn't see that's right in front of you. So whether it's looking at different industries, talking to different leaders, you know, recognizing that, you know, there are environmental things going on that can change the way your business exists in the future, I think it does allow you to think differently and ultimately make better decisions and be ahead of it versus either with it or, you know, worse behind it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the business. You guys, you made a strategic decision to partner with Gage Capital and expand in a different way using capital. How did you come about that decision? What, What was some of the thinking behind that, making that decision?
2: Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is that when we looked at our business, and this is going back two or three years ago... You know, we were, you know, above hundred million in revenue, highly profitable, you know, we haven't had, I think the only year that we haven't grown the business was in 2009, you know, or eight, whichever one it was, you know, due to the financial, I think it was nine. Right. Nine. We just really had the impact on our business. And even then we weren't down much, but, you know, we've had all this growth going on, but our growth in the more recent years has been more modest So, you know, we've had growth at, you know, five to 10%. And there's nothing to sneeze at there. And, you know, when you're north of 100 million, moving the needle a lot isn't the easiest thing to do. But with that said, what we sat back and thought about was over the course of probably from 2010, let's call it, to 2017, we had built this incredible foundation. And when I say foundation, I say client roster. Capability set, brand and brand equity, but most important was our team. We had grown up a lot of people. We had added a lot of people. And all of a sudden, we're sitting here with this like really, I think, impressive team of people and frankly, could do a heck of a lot more. And, you know, we, we sat back as a leadership group and we said, you know, we can continue to grow at 5 or 10% and maybe we'll get that number up a little bit. But do we have a bigger opportunity here that can really take us to a whole different place in terms of how we serve our clients and how our company functions, and ultimately, of course, financial success? So you know, we really sat back and said, you know, it's probably a good time for us to look at doing something with the business where you know we accomplish two things: we you know take some chips off the table and you know, be transparent about that. There's no question; it was a you know, a good financial outcome by doing this, but even more so bringing in a capital partner who could, you know, allow us to take bigger risks, allow us to really accelerate the business and, you know, and move to really grow it differently than we had been growing it over the last, you know, probably five years. And it has really proven out. I mean, we took in, you know, Gage Capital as our partner in July of 19, you know, within, eight months. We made four acquisitions, three of them sizable, one relatively small. But, you know, in the end, we transformed our business in a very short period of time in terms of capability, in terms of size and coverage, in terms of talent, tech. And we're just starting. You know, COVID, you know, has put a little bit of a damper on things and, you know, created some delays in some of our plans. But, you know, we're already out there with an acquisition that we're working on now. We've got, you know, others that we're looking at. And not only that, but just more talent acquisitions, more product development, more tech development. So, you know, I think that, you know, we potentially could be a three or four times the size of company that we were when we partnered with Gage in the next four or five years.
1: That's exciting.
2: It's incredible. We're really incredibly excited about it.
1: One of the things that in the M&A world or acquisition world, many times deals look great on paper, you do due diligence, it all looks fantastic. And you you hear about the integration stories and the difficulty with integrating a company into an existing organization. Do you have some principles around integration, philosophies that you could share when you think about acquiring a company? Yes,
2: absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a great topic. I mean, like I think of integration as the critical component of the acquisition game. I don't even know what the stats are, but you know, I think it's something like seven out of eight or it's like three out of four acquisitions fail. And, you know, like seven out of eight times, the reason is, is because of the integration process. And for me, it's always about the people. It's literally about, you know, you have to get the people part right. And, you know, that comes, I think of that in two ways. One is when you're in your due diligence process or even prior to due diligence, when you're talking to the business, culturally, chemistry wants. Do you truly fit together? And do you see, you know, the idea that, you know, you could sit around at a dinner table together and have a meal, you know, be at war together and, you know, and do this well. You want to make sure that feels right when you're going through that process. And if you feel that there's any risk there, more than likely you may have a real hard time, you know, later when you truly do the integration. And then when you close the deal and you then move into the integration phase, it's really around planning it. You know, and taking your time to get the people right, to get the organizational structure right, to get the buy-in, to align cultures well, to ensure that people have a sense of comfort you know, the funniest part about integrations, and we've done now, I think it's 16 of them. And frankly, we've only had one failure out of the 16. You know, granted, there's a few that the jury's still out because they're just being integrated. <laughs> but I feel very confident they're going to go well.
1: All signals look good.
2: Yes, all signals do look good. <laughs> but, you know, I'd say that the part that is always funny when you have the conversations with the teams is that everybody thinks it's going to happen so fast. Everybody thinks, and when you close the deal and you announce it to the team and you're starting to get everybody on board, they're all looking for these changes that are going to happen that week. And it doesn't work like that. These integrations sometimes take 6 to 12 months to happen. And, you know, they're very planned out and plotted properly. And, you know, if something feels uncomfortable, we take a step back and slow it up or we figure out what's not going right. But at the end of the day, at least within our world, it's always been about the people. And if we get that right, everything else sort of falls in line.
1: Right. And I always think about it from the perspective of, and I think you alluded to this, is, you know, if we go to war, will we be able to work together? And I think, you know, all the best laid plans tend to get disruptive. And if you can still anticipate that you could work with the new group of people to overcome the challenges, it's probably a pretty good recipe for success.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the old story is when everything's going great, everybody can be friends and celebrate together. It's when things don't go right or you have some real sticky points that you have to work your way through. That's when you really want to make sure you've got the right team together to do that.
1: I have a question that's so, re- that's a hot topic since COVID, and that is women in the workforce. A lot of women have been struggling with being able to manage schedules, and a lot of women still have the heavy burden of, burden and joy, I should say, of child raising, and especially with online school. And, you know, of course, in a marriage, you try to work it out. But ultimately, there have been instances and research that indicates that women are taking the heavier burden. Have you seen that play out in your company? And, you know, how are you guys dealing with that?
2: Yeah, so I absolutely agree with you. And I think there's, you know, so much truth to that. And, you know, I think that in the world that we live in today, and especially with, you know, COVID, but I think even in just in general, even COVID, you know, the idea of flexibility and, you know, sort of adjusting schedules when needed for children or for responsibilities and today you've got you know a lot of caregiving responsibilities beyond children even with parents and grandparents and such so i think that you know what we try to do within schlesinger group is really just be as mindful as we can and as flexible as we can to allow people to do their jobs as well as they can and you know that is critical but with the idea that their families and, you know, other priorities in their life are equally important, if not more important. And, you know, and, you know, we try to attack that as customized as we can, you know? So the thinking is, is if, you know, look, if you've got a child that's got remote learning and to be there to work with them, you'll make up the work before or after, or you figure out a way to make it work or we'll help you figure that out. You know, and we want, that balance in people's lives as much as possible. Our teams work incredibly hard. You know, it's one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that hard work. And, you know, sometimes it can get out of balance, but you have to make sure that you keep that in check. And surely you're happy at home. Things are going well at home. Your kids are okay. Your significant other's okay. You know, that's important. And it's going to just make for a better life and frankly, better work ultimately as well.
1: So true. That's uh, refreshing to hear. And I know a lot of companies are trying to figure this out, as well as other issues related to the pandemic and COVID. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I know you're really busy and I always love to catch up with you.
2: Same here, Sina. It's great talking to you and love your podcast and just honored to be a part of it.
1: Thank you so
0: much. Now more than ever, there's nothing like in-person research to deliver the voice and the views of the consumer. Face-to-face delivers on empathy, captures nuanced body language, and creates personal connections that can be explored further. All focus group facilities are committed to safe and socially distanced protocols to keep our teams, our clients, and our participants safe. People are engaged and excited to share new emotions, new buying patterns, and new ways that they're seeing the world clients need this deep insight to make the best possible decisions at this critical time. We're here, we're focused, and we're ready for in-person research. It's time to embrace the research space. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to.